Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Brilliant. Well, we're going to um, explore that part of God's word together now. Um, So I'd love you to keep that open. And why don't we pray? Let's pray as as we dig into God's word. Father, we've been singing about you. We've been reminded of who you are. And Lord, this afternoon, we pray, please, Lord, by your spirit, would you help us? Help us to enjoy this time with you. Help us not to be distracted, not to drift off, not to try and be somewhere else, but to be present here right now, that your spirit would speak to us and that we might know you. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're coming back to John's Gospel. We've had a couple of weeks off. Um, We're coming back to this miracle. And at last, finally, we're going to get to the bit where Jesus actually raises Lazarus from the dead. We spent three weeks already looking at this miracle. And uh, eventually, we we get there. Um, And this is the climactic moment in the first half of John's Gospel. You'll remember, I'm going to say it again, last time I'll probably say this, but seven big signs in John's Gospel, all of them pointing us like signposts telling us who Jesus is. Jesus made water into wine, he made a sick person well, he made a lame man walk, he made hungry people full, he made the sea into his pavement, he opened the eyes of the blind man, and now he's about to raise the dead man. Seven glorious, magnificent, powerful signs that are supposed to show us what Jesus is like. But I wonder if you ever have a Martha moment. What I mean is, I wonder whether you ever discover yourself to be slightly inconsistent in the way that you act. Like, there's something that you believe, that you really do believe, but you don't always act consistently with it. So you may well know that I am, a, I am very anti-raisins and dried fruit of all sorts. That may be something that you have picked up if you've been at Globe Church for more than two weeks. But if you offered me a hot cross bun, I'd accept it, particularly if it was toasted with butter on. And you may say, but hang on a second, there's a gap between what you proclaim you believe and your behavior. What's going on? And I want to suggest that at a much more profound level, many of us experience that in our lives. Let me show you what I mean. 
Look at the two words that Martha says at this, um, in verse 39. Jesus says, take away the stone. So here's Lazarus, her brother has died. Jesus says, take away the stone. And she says, but Lord. Now that's interesting. Think about it for a second. Those two words, but Lord. They shouldn't really go together, should they? You see, to call Jesus Lord is to proclaim him to be the one who has all authority, all sovereign power. To proclaim him to be the king. To proclaim him to be the one who has all authority, but, oh, but. And what we see in Martha in this moment is a gap. You know when you go to a tube station and the, the announcer says, mind the gap. What we're seeing in Martha is a gap beginning to open up between what she knows about Jesus and her struggle to really believe it and live it. You see, she's already said, if you've got a Bible, just look back um, to verse 25, where Jesus has said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who's to come into the world. Yes, Lord. I believe. But. You see, in this moment, as Jesus stands at the tomb of her brother and says, take away the stone, she is engulfed with doubt and the gap between what she proclaims to be true and this moment is too big. I believe you're powerful, but not for this. This situation is too big. It's too hard. Jesus, this is too challenging even for you. And so Martha places limits and boundaries around this word, Lord. Yes, you're Lord, but... Not of this situation. I wonder if there are places in our lives where the lordship of Jesus is restricted. Yes, Lord, I believe, but not in this bit. Well, certainly the tomb of a dead man was such a place. Surely not even Jesus is able to do anything about this. But the problem is that Martha has an inadequate view of the glory and power of Jesus. And so what Jesus is going to do out of his deep love for Martha and out of his deep love for you, what Jesus is going to do is he is going to show the true extent of his glory and power in order to blow all of our butt-lords out of the window. If you like, to heal the disconnection between what we believe and the way we act. He is going to drag those things together and say, no, there are no limits and there are no boundaries and there are no restrictions on how far my authority reaches, says Jesus. And I'm going to show you that now. And so we might be people who are willing to call Jesus Lord. We might even describe ourselves as Christians. We might sing about Jesus. But all of us face those moments. 
So let's listen to this story. What we're going to do is we're going to, I'm going to work through the story fairly quickly. I'm going to show you how the story works. Three big scenes in the story. And uh, just at that point where you think, wow, this sermon's really going quite quickly today. Three points, we're really getting on well. I've then got six implications of those three points. So uh, we'll look forward to those. Um, so <laughs> so let's, let's get going. Uh, first thing I want to show you is that Jesus, as he comes into this situation, sets up a confrontation. Let's notice first the confrontation. Right, let's, let's uh, get back into the text and look closely at what it says. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. All the action so far has, has happened away from the tomb. So Jesus has been far, far away. He heard the news about Lazarus being sick. He waited for a while, and then he made the journey. And Martha went out to meet him, and he had this, conference, he had this conversation with Martha where she declared, yes, Lord, I believe, but that happened away from the tomb. And then Jesus came closer, and then Mary, the second sister, came out and met him. And both of them said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And to Martha, Jesus spoke powerful words I am the resurrection and the life. To Mary, Jesus showed powerful emotion as he wept, as he grieved with her. And now he's coming closer and closer and closer. And the crowds have said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Why wasn't he here? But now Jesus comes. He's come right to the tomb. Jesus does not shy away from the harsh realities of death. He enters right to the place, right to the tomb. He comes into the battle. But he hasn't come here simply to grieve. He hasn't come here simply to be another comforter for the sisters. No, Jesus has much bigger ambitions. He has a much bigger purpose in mind. And so he throws down this challenge. Listen to this. He throws down this challenge. Take away the stone. That is a challenge. You see, the stone represents the victory that death has won. You see, the stone has been rolled across and shut Lazarus in. Death has hold of Lazarus. He's in the darkness. He's behind the stone in the darkness and the stillness. And Jesus says, take that stone away. It's a bit like Jesus saying, wipe that smug grin off your face, death. We are not finished here. Take away the stone. Jesus is about to do battle. John Calvin, who's a um, guy, a, a theologian from many years ago, he wrote this about this passage. Christ approaches the tomb as a champion preparing for a contest. I think that's right. Jesus comes as a warrior to do battle. But you see, Martha is anxious about this, right? Jesus comes, lays down the challenge. Martha's anxious. But Lord, she says, <laughs> here's her moment. By this time, look, look, but Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. That's who she is. 
He's dead. By this time, there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. You see, Martha sort of knows what lies behind that tomb. She knows what lies behind the stone, and it's a horror. No, no, we don't open up death. We don't do that. We, we close death off. We hide it away because it's too awful. No, we don't move the stone away, Jesus. But Lord, no, we don't do that. Death has the final word. And in our culture, that's still the case, isn't it? In our culture, it's still true that death is often hidden away. Death is often shut away. It's, it's, it's not seen. We, we don't talk about it. We keep it out of sight, behind a stone. But Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? He says, no, this is what we're going to do. Verse 41, so they took away the stone. Do you feel the drama? (laughs) Come on, you might know this story, but do you feel the drama? As Jesus comes to do battle, take away the stone, let's face this. Let's have this out, let's do this. That's the confrontation. Then Jesus does something slightly weird. He prays. Here's the second thing. The second scene is the prayer. So we're told halfway through verse 41, then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard... Now, this is... Isn't this an odd prayer? Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus doesn't pray for help. He doesn't pray, God, please help me, because this is going to be really, really tricky. Now, it sounds more like he's already been praying that. (laughs) I thank you that you've heard me. And this prayer shows us that Jesus is very intentional in what he's doing. Jesus is going to reveal the glory of God. So he speaks and he says, Father. Why does he call God Father? Well, because he's the Son. He's the eternal Son of God. If you've been anywhere around John's Gospel, you'll know this. This is what John has been showing us. Jesus has this intimate, deep relationship with his Father. And so he prays because he wants the people who are watching to be crystal clear in their minds that he is the Son who has come to do the work of the Father. He says, if you see me, you see the Father. So he wants them to know that as he raises Lazarus from the dead, this is the Father at work, God at work. The glory of God on display. Jesus is no magic miracle worker. He is the Son of God who does the work of God by the power of God through dependence upon God his Father. Don't miss what we're being shown. And he has this deeply close relationship. You've heard me. Thank you that you've heard me. And I want people to believe so that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus isn't worried in this moment about whether he's going to be able to pull off this miracle. He's not got his fingers crossed going, man, I hope I can pull this off. I used to do magic shows for kids' parties. Don't laugh. This is how I made all my money as a teenager. 
Right? I used to go and do little uh, tricks. It wasn't, it wasn't, it was not impressive. <laughs> and every time I did a magic trick, I was sort of like, oh man, I really hope they're going to fall for this. I hope I'm going to be able to pull this off. I was a bit anxious about it. Six-year-old says, but you you know, can see exactly what you're doing. Jesus isn't worried about whether he can pull off this magic trick. His bigger concern is that whether people will see and believe the glory of God. That's what he's concerned about. He's got no issue doing the miracle. He just wants, he desperately wants the people who see to believe. To see for themselves that he is the one sent by God. That's why he prays. So that's the prayer. And then comes the power. So after he's prayed, look at verse 43. It's just magnificent. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Can you imagine the sound of Jesus saying, Lazarus, come out? Can you imagine the power of that voice? Look, you have to understand that Jesus is issuing a command at that point. He is commanding, commanding Lazarus, come out. But he's commanding Lazarus to do something that Lazarus cannot do. It's an impossible command. It's a command that cannot be obeyed. It's a command that Lazarus is completely powerless. It's ridiculous. Yet. And yet. In the very command, in the very word of Jesus, in the voice of Jesus, there is the power to bring about that which he commands. You see, my words have some power. I can do some things just by speaking. So can you. If I was to say, I'm thirsty, please get me a drink, that would have, it might have an effect. It might not. I appreciate that. It would be a risk, right? But my words are limited in what they can achieve. But here is the voice of Jesus which carries the power and authority to to bring about the impossible. It's magnificent. So what is this voice that can command a dead man to get up and walk? I'll tell you what voice it is. It's the same voice that said, let there be light. And there was light. How did God create the world? By speaking, by the power of his voice. And here is the same voice because this is the one sent by the Father, the Son, who speaks with the same voice, the same voice that can speak and bring things into being. As he speaks, life comes. It's magnificent. Let Let me just read you some words from Psalm 29. Listen to this. Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord, right, listen to this about the voice of God. 
The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. It is the voice of the Lord that is majestic, that is powerful, that is, to take the language of Psalm 29, able to twist oaks and strip them bare, or to put it in the language of John 11, it is the voice of the Lord that is able to twist death and disarm it and strip it bare, so that all may see and cry glory. That's what John's gospel is all about, that you would see that Jesus is the one who speaks with the very voice of God and that you would fall down before him and cry glory, glory, that you would see his glory and believe. And it is as Jesus speaks that life comes. And so out comes Lazarus, probably shuffling out, all wrapped up in linen, shuffling out. Can you imagine seeing it? And then Jesus says, take off the grave clothes and let him go. He's wearing the wrong clothes. Get those clothes off him. And he's set free. And in this moment, Jesus, the great warrior, as he confronts death and says, take away the stone, he then speaks and death loses. Death has to let go and Lazarus walks out. Okay, what has all this got to do? What's all this got to do with us? Other than it being a great story, happy, happy, nice. Happy ending. Who doesn't like a happy ending? Here are six things that I think it should really make us stop and think about this afternoon. Okay, here we go. Um, firstly, it shows a glimpse of his identity. We've been talking about this, but I want to nail this for you. Do you see who Jesus truly is? Again, we, we may say, yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it, I know he's the Son of God, he's the Son of God. Yes, Martha said that. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, and many of us in this room might go, yeah, yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, John 11 is here to say... Do, can we close the gap? <laughs> the gap between what you say you believe about who Jesus is and the way that you live. If someone looked at your life, would they conclude that you genuinely believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Is that what they would conclude? That you have that sort of confidence that even death is no match for this king. We need to see more clearly the identity of Jesus. 
We need to see more clearly and with less limitations and restrictions and less but Lord, but Lord, but Lord. We need to see him as he truly is, to behold his glory and to fall down before him and believe. And you may say to me, but how does that happen? You know, do I have to work that up? Do I have... No, you have to keep coming to him, keep gazing upon him, keep learning from him, keep loving him, keep listening to him. And the further you go on in the Christian life and the more that you trust him, the more that you discover he is who he said he is and you can trust him. This is why church is important. This is why one another are important because you can watch each other and you can see other people as they struggle and as they suffer. They're trusting Jesus and you go, well, they're trusting him. He is who he said he is. It shows you a glimpse of his identity. I want to encourage you to get close to those who are perhaps a bit older, perhaps who've been through some stuff. Ask them to tell you about Jesus. Because they're people who've been proved, who've proved and have lived this, yes, I believe. Yes, I believe. But it doesn't just show us a glimpse of his identity. Actually, this miracle that Jesus did in John 11, it points forwards to his own resurrection. It's very difficult to miss this, right? It's difficult to think, well, this resurrection of Lazarus is pointing us to the great resurrection that Jesus is going to go through because Jesus is not simply come to stand at the grave tomb of someone else and proclaim, come out. In just a few chapters' time, Jesus himself will experience death. Jesus himself will be overwhelmed by this enemy of death and will be placed in a tomb, and a stone will be rolled in front, and he will be enslaved. He will be trapped. He will be imprisoned by death. And then Jesus himself will roll back the stone, will leave the tomb, and will proclaim his great victory forever and ever. You see, this This resurrection is what each of us so desperately needs to understand. That Jesus actually, really, factually in history has risen from the dead. Here again is where we need to close the gap, right? Close the gap between a sort of, oh yeah, yeah, I sort of believe Jesus rose from the dead. No, do you really believe? Do you believe that there was a day, a day in history, when if you'd been alive you could have been there? Right? There was actually a day, it really happened, when a stone rolled back, when Jesus walked out, never to die again. This miracle as he raised Lazarus from the dead points us forward to the fact that Jesus alone has the power of death, over death. Which is the third thing, it reveals who's holding the keys When you get to the last book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus says, I am the living one. Behold, I was dead. Now I'm alive forever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus holds the key of death. The key is the 
authority, right? The key is the power. So you have the key to your house. I don't have a key to your house. (laughs) You'll be really glad to know. That's not how we operate things in this church. I don't have the authority to come into your... Only you do. And only you get to choose who else can have that key. You could give me a key if you say, could you, you know, come around, here's a key. But it's your authority. Jesus doesn't just have the keys to a house. He holds the key of death itself. Jesus is the one who has this key that he is able to unlock death and bring whoever he chooses out of death itself. He has the key. He holds the power over death, your death. This is why he matters more than anything. Again, as we are confronted with a world of death, as we one day will face up to our own death, we've got to close the gap. Do you believe this? Do you believe that you can trust Jesus even with your own death? Jesus holds the keys. Let's keep pushing on. Because fourthly, this this miracle is actually a beautiful picture of what it even means to be a Christian. Just think of it, right? This is what it means to be a Christian. If you're here and you've never been to church before or you're very new to all this, you're not really sure what a Christian is, this is what a Christian is. Lazarus is a picture of what we were like, or what we are like by nature. The Bible says that we are dead. Ephesians chapter 2 says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in the way in which you used to live. When we lived for ourselves in sin, we were dead. Dead means we're powerless, right? Dead people can't save themselves. And yet, this is what it means to be a Christian. It means that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came and He spoke. And as we heard Him speak, His voice raised us to life. Jesus came and stood at the door of my life and he said Johnty come out rise come out of death move from death to life but I can't because I'm dead and not only am I dead I'm deaf and blind as well I can't listen to the voice of Jesus. I can't hear him. But here's why it's so important. The voice of Jesus contains within it to do that which it commands. That is Jesus as he speaks. He creates the life in me. And so as Jesus calls me, he awakens me and brings me to himself. If you're a Christian, that's what he's done for you. At some point in your life, you heard Jesus say, come, come, come to me. And as you heard that voice, just as Lazarus was raised from the dead, so you were raised. In that moment, you were raised. That takes the powerful voice of God to raise the dead. Only God can do that. 
Have you heard his voice? Just one chapter earlier in John, Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. Have you listened to his voice? He's calling you. Come to me, come to me, come to me. Come follow me, come see my glory, come believe in me. I'll give you life. And as we listen, that voice is powerful to raise the dead and to bring us to himself. This is a picture of how you become a Christian. And it may be that there are people in your life and you say, I don't think that they would ever become a Christian, but Lord. Lord, I believe, I believe, I believe, but Lord. But, but, but. There are restrictions, there are limitations, not this much. And this afternoon, Jesus says to you, no, I am Lord. I am the the one who can raise the dead. And therefore, people do not start to follow Jesus because of our brilliant, clever arguments. People don't follow Jesus because we're so lovely. Oh, what lovely people Christians are. Perhaps we should all follow Jesus. No one follows Jesus because they look at us. The only way anyone will ever follow Jesus is if he speaks and he raises them to life. It's his work, not ours. That means our job is to point them to him. Our job is to tell them what he says. And as they hear his voice in the pages of the Bible, he raises them to new life. Don't you long for God to do that in London, in people's lives, to see thousands of Lazaruses come to life? Don't you long to see that? People who are living their life and they think that they're free, but in actual fact they are dead because they're far away from God and Jesus wants to raise them and bring them to life. Are we up for being part of that? Will will you pray that? Will you be part of that? Will you give your life for that? Fifth thing I think this story does is it challenges us to live out this freedom. I love this little line at the end of the account where Jesus says, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I just wonder whether some of us, we've heard the voice of Jesus, we've been called by him, we've turned to him, we've begun to follow him, but the reality is that we're still living with the old clothes on. We're still living as if death is our master. We're still living as if we're enslaved, as as if we still kind of want to be in, in death. And Jesus comes and he says, no, I've raised you to life. Take off your grave clothes. Go free. I wonder what it, what it is. I wonder where there's areas of your life where you're still wearing old clothes. You're still wearing what you used to be. You're still behaving like you used to behave. You're still acting in ways that you know aren't right. And Jesus says, I've, I've raised you from dead. That's not who you are. Take off your grave clothes. Stop living that way and live freedom. I've bought freedom for you. What are the clothes that you need to take off? What are the grave clothes that need to be left behind? You see, we've got to close the gap, right? 
It's easy to walk around saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a new, I'm a, I've been made alive by Jesus. I love Jesus. I follow Jesus. And yet then we live lives and it's as if our life is completely disconnected from what we say we believe. He'd be like Lazarus for the rest of his life walking around in grave clothes going, yeah, Jesus raised me from the dead. It's great. It's really fun. Well, why are you shuffling around for? Why are you still wearing that stuff? And I think far too many of us, we, we say, yeah, Jesus raised me from the dead. It's really great. And now I shuffle around. We've got to throw that stuff off. We've got to take it off. We've been set free. Jesus says, let them go. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Jesus came that you might have life and have it to the full, not to shuffle around in old grave clothes, not to faff around with an old way of life that you've, you've died to that. It's no longer who you are. Live this new life that he has for you, this life of freedom and joy, this life of dependence and glory. I don't know what that is for you. Chuck it off. Throw it away. And then the sixth thing that I think this story helps us to see is that it anticipates the future day. This is such a rich, I mean, there's such a rich little episode, this, in John's Gospel. Because it shows us what's going to happen to Jesus, his resurrection. It shows us what's already happened to us when we first became Christians. But it also points us to what will one day happen to us. When Jesus, at the very last day, will speak and will raise all of his people to life. There's a kind of um, acute little thing that lots of people say about this um, verse when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And it's a bit quirky and it's probably not even particularly true but it's quite helpful um you know when jesus says lazarus come out he has to say lazarus because if he didn't say lazarus everyone would come out because his voice is so powerful and it's like come out and everyone goes what is it time now no no not you're not yet sorry no go back go back just lazarus i just wanted lazarus sorry no just just you the rest of you have to wait a little bit longer sorry <laughs> But actually what you see in Lazarus is a little taste of what Jesus one day will do. You see, Jesus one day will stand and in a loud voice will cry out and all who have died in Christ will be raised. And all will be raised to live forever. Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is going to let us go. And we live in anticipation of that day. And Lazarus' resurrection is a little picture. And Jesus' resurrection is a better picture of this final day when we will be raised and will be with him forever. So if your life is a bit rubbish, and if your life is a bit disappointing... And if you feel like nothing's really getting anywhere, and you feel like all your ambitions are going wrong, and you feel like you're getting old and things are passing you by, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And we've got to mind the gap. Because lots of us might say, oh yeah, I believe that there's going to be this great day in the future and we'll all be in, you know, with Jesus and the new creation is going to be fab. But the things we seem to get excited about are this. 
but tonight I'm having Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, see? Exciting. And the things we get excited about and the things that we live for and the things that we plow all our energies into are, are so transient and flimsy and don't last. And over here, we've got this amazing future when God will raise you. You, he will raise your physical body to life. And your body and soul will be reunited to live with him for all eternity in the new creation. And you will live and you will enjoy. And there will be no disappointment. And there'll be no, oh, that's a shame. And there'll be no failed ambitions. And there'll, no, there'll be no more pain. That's where we live for. And it helps us in this world, it helps us in this world to cope when things go wrong. And yes, we grieve, just like Martha and Mary grieved at the tomb of Lazarus. But not without hope, because Jesus will raise us. We need to mind the gap. Look, I need to finish. This is a story that gives us a snapshot, a little snapshot of the true glory of Jesus. Do you believe this? Where's he challenging you now? Where do you see the gap between what you say you believe and what you live? And this afternoon, will you ask God by his spirit to mind that gap, to heal that disconnection, that we might be a church? Can you imagine what a church we would be if we were so completely consumed and confident that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who came to give us life, who came to breathe life into us, to speak life into us, and to give us a hope and a future beyond anything we've ever dreamed. Let's pray, and let's ask that God would help us. Heavenly Father, we ask that you'd please help us to not just say we believe these things, but that you by your Spirit would deeply impress these things on our hearts. Lord, help us to see how glorious this is. And we ask that that gap would get a little bit narrower. Lord, we're always going to struggle with this. There's always going to be a gap. We're never going to fully get this. Just like Martha, we're always going to have those moments when we struggle. But we pray that that gap would shrink and that we would learn to put all of our trust, all of our hope, all of our faith in the glory of this King Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen.